Listen, Psalm 19, 1 through 2 declares, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. It was someday, I believe it was in August 1992. I was 20 years old, and I opened my eyes one warm late summer day. And as I opened them, I looked at the sky. I looked at the grass. I looked at the whole world, and I saw it as if I was seeing it for the first time in my entire life. I was in college. I was a junior. But I was seeing the world as a babe. As a babe in Christ for the first time. And listen, seeing the world as a new child in Jesus Christ, it made all the difference in how I saw the world. Because when I saw the green lawn in my college, and I saw the squirrels running around the trees, and I I saw the sun up in the sky, the canopy of the brightest blue above my soul, I saw the world not sourced in something random, accidental or vague. I saw it sourced in someone, someone loving, and someone very near, and someone very intentional about this day that he was bringing forth before my eyes. I saw for the first time that the beauty of it all was a gift. The warm air, the sun, the trees, even the squirrels, they were for my joy. They were a gift from my Heavenly Father. I saw His humor. I saw His tenderness. I saw His artist heart. If you ever wonder if God has a sense of humor, just watch squirrels for for a half hour. I saw it for the first time as a miracle. It was all sourced in the uncreated, unstoppable, unquenchable, almighty power of the one who had now become my father. It was power I could not fully understand, but for the first time I could wonderfully worship in it securely. I saw for the first time that it was a message to me that my father loved me personally and he delighted to create this world, to show me his love for me and how, how amazing he was. The sky indeed was proclaiming the glory of God. But what had allowed me to see the world this way? You guys know the, the punchline of that. You guys know the answer to that story. But, but, but it's important to, to really examine that truth of that. See, b- because before I was able to see the glory of God in creation, as I did on this day, as I had never before, I had to see God's glory another way. A more important way. For just days or perhaps hours, I can't remember now, from that seeing of the sky and the seeing of the beauty of the world created, just before that moment, I had believed the gospel, I believe for the first time in my life, God had opened up my eyes to the glory of God, not in creation, but in Jesus Christ that he was my savior, that he bore all of my sins, that he didn't leave one left out, that he could make me new just for the trusting. 
And seeing that glory in Jesus just earlier, that was what made possible my seeing all of creation as the glory of God my Father and reveling in it. Because Jesus gave me new eyes to see God's glory. Jesus gave me new eyes to see my Father. You might have guessed by now, by our text and by what I I just said, that, that this morning our message is about the glory of God. About the Father's glory and Jesus' glory and how seeing that glory brings new life and it brings new eyes and a new experience of life. But before we go further, I want us to admit something about God's glory. I think many of us could admit it is a tricky issue. For starters, many of us might ask, what exactly does God's glory mean? It's one of those Bible words that's so important. It's so crucial to understanding God. But it's one of those words that's so often used. It's so often sung. It's so often read that we kind of pass over it as if it were ingredients in a cereal box. We know it's there. We know it means something. But come on, what is the big deal? What what are we really supposed to do with it? Of course, many of us do understand on a basic level that God's glory refers to his qualities being seen or understood, celebrated as they truly should be. And we'll talk more about that. But as we see how important this is to the God of the Bible, we might secretly wonder, as I have, why does he care so much about his own glory? Is he some sort of almighty narcissist? A megalomaniac running the universe? Or more likely... We have experienced, maybe most of us in this room, as his children, we have experienced something of his glory. We have tasted it. We have loved it. But our grasp, it's like the internet connection at Starbucks. We have a great connection for a little while, and then suddenly it's gone. There's like 40 people in the room, and or maybe there's two, and nobody seems to care that the internet's right in the middle of my email It's gone. We're we're suddenly offline. We barely knew how we got online, and now we're offline. And what do we do about this? Our hearts want to understand and experience God's glory, but the connection is frail. Wherever you fall in those scenarios, wherever I fall, and and I've fallen in all of them, and I still run through all of them, the bottom line is the Bible tells us, Jesus tells us, we must have God's glory. We must see God's glory. We have to understand what it is. We need to savor it. We need to experience it more than anything. And it's up to God to reveal it to us, whether for the first time or the 4,000th time this morning. And that's what this morning is about. That's what every Sunday morning is about. It's about seeing God's glory fresh. And I want that for myself. And I'm a sinner, but there's a, by God's grace, a new part of my heart that really wants it for you. So let's go to God. He wants to show us. We want to see it. Hey, we got a deal. Should we ask him right now in prayer to show us his glory this morning? Lord, bless your people through your word. Show us your glory afresh this morning. We need a a refreshing vision. There's a reason why you call us to pray every week 
or to pray every day. And there's a reason why you call us to gather as a, as a community of believers every week on the first day of the week. Because we need refreshment in you. And we need that together. And you love it when we come together to seek you together. Father, this is a room full of your children. And in this room are, are, are those who probably, Lord, still need to become your children. And we ask for ourselves and we ask for them as well. Show us your glory afresh today. Through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, after seven years, we're coming to the end of the Upper Room Discourse. Jesus has told his disciples all that his heart has seen fit to tell them. All that we've looked at so closely now, honestly, for months, not seven years. He's talked to them about the humility of God's heart in the washing of the feet. The Holy Spirit coming to give them new life. The abiding in the vine that's necessary for fruit bearing. He's told them about the terrible persecution that's to come and his power to sustain them through it. Last week, Andrew told us about the power of prayer that he's bequeathed to them in his name and his peace in a world of tribulation. And now he's done teaching them. He's done. He's, he's delivered to them all that he can before the cross. And now all that he's promised to them, all that he's taught them, it, it must be secured no longer by his teaching, but by his agonizing sacrifice. God the Son must now submit himself to be punished by God the Father. To become sin for these men he loves, these women that he loves, this world that he loves. To become sin for all of us and receive God's wrath so that we might be saved. And so Jesus is done talking with people. And in light of what he has to do, his eyes turn somewhere else. He strengthened his brothers. Now he needs strength. So he looks up to his father. And that's where we pick up today. Speaking of all Jesus had said. Our first six words. When Jesus had spoken these words. When Jesus had spoken the last. What four chapters of John. He lifted up his eyes to heaven. And he said. Father. The hour has come. Glorify your son. That the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh. To give eternal life. To all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life. That they know you. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth. Having accomplished the work you gave me to do. And now father glorify me. In your own presence. With the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This is the word of the Lord. We're going to take this passage, this little passage, in two parts today. And the first I'm calling, God's glory is Jesus' greatest passion. God's glory is Jesus' greatest passion. And it should be ours as well. 
This is going to be the longer point, I believe, of the two. So, so have a snack. <laughs> what? What you're supposed to do with that? I just want you to be prepared for a long point. That's what I want. So Jesus is going to spend the whole of John 17, though, the whole of the next, the whole of this, this chapter. It's like 33, 36 verses, maybe more, praying to his father for all the disciples and all of those he'll die for. For all of us in this room who belong to him, he will pray for us in this passage. But before he talks to the father about any of them, he prioritizes the father. That's what's on his heart above all things. Is his father's heart. See, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. When the Pharisees had tried to kill Jesus in chapter 8, he told them the hour had not yet come. When his brothers had tried to get him to go to Jerusalem, he said, my hour had not yet come. When his mom had tried to get him to expose his glory at the first miracle in Cana, he said, my hour has not come. His hour has come. His hour has come. 33 years on earth, three years in ministry. And, and just a short time ago, he'd said this in, in John 12. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. So Jesus looks to heaven, knowing the greatest, most painful challenge the triune God will ever have awaits as the son will be crushed by the father to save the world in the giving of the Holy Spirit. God the son will be humiliated. He will be mocked. He will be beaten. He will be spat upon. Bone and metal scourging will whip his body into bloody shreds. He will have a crown of thorns slammed into his skull. He will be pierced through with nails Stabbed to a block of wood. He will be pierced in his chest with a Roman spear. And spiritually, he will bear invisible, untold horror as the sins of the whole world are laid upon him in dreadful, hellish judgment. So what does he pray about this coming hour? Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. What does he say about this hour? He calls it an opportunity to bring glory to his father. He asks for God to bring him glory so that he might bring his father glory through it. And this brings us back head to head with that question we asked at the beginning. What is glory? What is it to be glorified? What is Jesus really asking for? Now, in the Bible, I think, when something is rightly glorified, it is simply revealed. It is simply shown for what it is. It's invisible or hidden character. It's made visible. It's made clear. It's made seeable. We see this really well in Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6, in Isaiah 6, Isaiah sees God seated on a throne, high and lifted up. The angels are calling out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his holiness. No. They say holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. 
Was God's holiness bypassed and they're just moving on now to his glory? No, no, no. They move from holy to glory because glory is the right word to explain that his holiness is being revealed. His holiness is being shown. God is being glorified in his holiness. We see the same thing in Exodus Exodus 33. Moses pleads with God, God, show me your glory. And what is God's response? He comes to Moses and he speaks about who he is to Moses. He proclaims his name. He shows, he reveals, he opens up, he puts on display who he is to Moses. After Moses says, show me your glory. And he tells Moses who he is. And that to God is glorifying himself. He is showing who he is. And so we might use a simple definition for God's glory like this. God's glory is his perfection and worth being expressed outward to the universe. God's glory is his perfection and his infinite worth being expressed outwardly to the universe. Or as John Piper says in an uncharacteristically simple way for John Piper. (laughs) All right. A little bit of like in-house joking there. Sorry, sometimes I just get like funny ideas at the most inopportune times and I I can't conceal them. Because John Piper can often be very, 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 very hard to understand for for other people. (laughs) Um, But John Piper, I'm just teasing. But John Piper says this so well. He says, the glory of God is the going public of his infinite worth. The glory of God is the going public of his infinite worth. When God is given glory or when he's glorified, it doesn't make God holy or loving or just or good. It just means that those things that he had always been are now being revealed. They're being seen finally. They're being put on display finally. They're being expressed now in such a way that he can now be perceived outside of himself. God's glory is his perfection and infinite worth expressed outwardly to the universe. He's going public with who he is. And so when Jesus says, the hour has come, glorify your son, that your son may glorify you, think about this. Jesus is implicitly saying that this horrible torture and murder of God the Son, this sin-covered, hell-receiving worm that Jesus is about to become, that this is God's perfection, an infinite worth being expressed outwardly to the universe. Psalm 19 says, The heavens proclaim the glory of God. Amen. But John 17 says, How much more the horrifying crucifixion of the Messiah proclaims the glory of God. And he says, with that in mind, let me be seen so that you might be seen. Jesus is asking that his being nailed to that cross will, in the most stunning, shocking, universe-changing, hell-destroying way imaginable, accomplish for him and for his Father. Listen, will accomplish exactly what John said Jesus came to do in the very first chapter of this book. 
Remember in John 1, starting in 14, John says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father. Full of the law? No, full of grace and truth. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Who had ever seen God like this before? Who had ever seen God like this in redemptive history past? John says, no one. Not Moses, not Enoch, not Noah, not Adam. No one has ever seen God. Not like this. The only God who is at the Father's side. He, He alone has made Him known fully. On the cross, Jesus reveals God's heart of holiness. The righteous judge who must judge and punish all sin He is not fooling around about his holiness and about sin. He is holy. And he will punish sinners for their terrible sin. But on the cross, Jesus reveals God's infinite love for those same sinners. The Father wants none to perish. And so he makes a way for all to be saved by providing the Lamb of God his very own son to be punished in their stead. That is the heart of God revealed to the world. That is who God is. Remember that in chapter 14, Jesus said to Thomas, how can you say, Thomas, show us the father? Don't you know that the father is in me doing his work? He who has seen me has seen the father. Consider for a moment the implication of this concerning Jesus' desire that the Father would be seen in his glorification on the cross. When you see Jesus on the cross, you see the heart of the Father for you. There is no difference in the quality of love for the world between the Father and the Son, as if the Father was up there just waiting for the Son to clean up this mess out of his great heart of sacrifice, but the Father himself was cold and indifferent until Jesus had made people holy enough to be in his presence. No, 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 no. What you see Jesus doing, you see the Father doing in and through Jesus. And I don't believe that the Trinity, there's a mystery to this, I don't believe that the Trinity stopped existing on the cross. I can't solve how God poured his wrath over his Son and yet remained united with his Son But that's not for me to explain. But what I want to do here is is help you guys understand. When we see Jesus, when we see his love, when we see his sacrifice, that is the same heart that is in the Father. In fact, it might be said that it was no less painful. Listen, this is sanctified estimation here. But I think it incredibly might be argued that it was no less painful for the Father who is in himself selflessness who is in himself selfless love personified that for that kind of being 
It was just, if not more painful, to cause his son to suffer for mankind than it would be for himself, the father, to get on the cross. But notice again the selflessness of the son. His joy is found in his father's glorification. Glorify the son. Why? Because the son wants to hog the glory. No, because I want you to be glorified, father. That selflessness, though, God is one. That selflessness is the same heart of the father. So what I hope we can take away from this point is what we can learn is that God's pursuit of his glory here is not selfish in the least. God is not a megalomaniac narcissist. It is the desire of God to make known to the world who he is because it is right and just and it is the only good thing for the world. Because God is perfect in holiness and God is selflessness in his love. And so listen, while it's enough that the almighty God deserves infinite glory because he's the only source, he's the only sustainer of all things, Apart from his love, he's still the, the only uncaused cause of all existence. That glory alone is worthy of our, of our worship, of our reverence, of our fear, of our thankfulness. But on the cross, his love, his selflessness, shines with the brightness of an infinite number of blinding suns. This should only be clearer by looking at Jesus' next word as he continues in our last point. Number two, God's glory is the fuel for our eternal life. God's glory is the fuel for our eternal life. Jesus says, verse two, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So first, Jesus has prayed, glorify me by sustaining me through the cross, that you might be glorified. Right? And now, Jesus connects that desire to be glorified on the cross with the salvation of all of God's people. I believe the flow of the prayer, one, might go something like this. In verse 1, Father, show people who you are through my death and resurrection. And verse 2 and 3 might be said this way, so that I might be your means of bringing eternal life to all the people you've given me to save. This is maybe a poor estimation, but that's what I see. I see verse 1, Father, show people who you are, that you might be lifted up and exalted through me. Number 2, so that by your means of me, you would bring eternal life to the people that you've Chosen to save. Because this is how people receive and experience saving eternal life. They come to see who God is through Jesus. They see the beauty in God's holiness. They see the love through the cross. And because of this, they long for him. And by God's grace, they trust God when he says, turn to me through faith in my son. You will receive forgiveness. You will experience peace and reconciliation. This is what eternal life is. It is to see and behold and be able to embrace who God is. 
God revealing his glory is tantamount to God giving us eternal life. God showing us who he is in his love, in his mercy on the cross. It is him giving us eternal life. And him continuing to show us who he is in Jesus is him continuing to sustain in us eternal life. At its core, eternal life is not an issue of longevity, but of knowing who God is and continuing to know him. It's a never-ending, restored relationship in which knowing God more and more through Jesus is the whole point. Knowing is the same word that the Bible uses in different places, even for sexual intimacy. It doesn't mean sexuality. It just means a deep relational knowing. It goes beyond intellectual knowledge, though it, it is built on intellectual knowledge. It goes beyond it into relationship of knowing his heart and him knowing your heart. That is the fuel for our eternal life. That is how we experience eternal life now. That's how we taste it today. We, we see God for who he is. We're freed by that to love him, to worship him, and to walk without fear. Listen, sooner or later we all find out that you cannot put diesel gas in an engine diagnosed to run on standard fuel. You can't do it. I promise. It will not be good for your engine to put diesel fuel in a, in a regular engine, in an unleaded engine. It's bad. I've heard about it. I've tried to do it many times. But the, the good people who make like fuel gauges protect me from my idiocy by making the fuel handle too big for my unleaded gas tank. But you can't do it anyway. I mean, you could do it. It's going to just wreck your car, right? In the same way, we cannot put the fuel of the glory of careers or movies or children or food or marriage or ministry, or America, or friendship, or sex, or safety, or perhaps most deceptive of all, the fuel of the glory of personal morality. You cannot put those fuels in the engine of your soul and at the same time deprive it of the fuel of the glory of God in Jesus Christ Amen. without corroding your engine and doing it terrible damage. You can't do it. Unfortunately for us, there's no like bad diesel handle on our souls to keep us from overfilling our hearts with stuff that gets in the way of God. Sadly, our hearts can run for a long time on the wrong fuel. But eventually everything breaks down. And so God reminds us, eternal life is running on the fuel of knowing me. Seeing me in the gospel of my son. Feasting on my glory. Feasting on who I am. Feasting on my faithfulness to you. Feasting on my sovereignty over you. Feasting on my forgiveness for you and my righteousness put upon you. Feasting on my daily sufficient grace for your weaknesses and your sins. Feasting on my hearing your prayers and helping you. Feasting on you knowing me and making me known. You know, just last week, I could not put my finger on it, but I was walking for several days under this dark cloud. I wasn't aware of any particular sin I was hiding, though I'm sure there was sin, but my hope was so dim. I felt a sense of spiritual oppression. 
It had a strong grip on my soul that was growing and it was depressing. And then one day I just sat down and probably out of desperation, I began meditating through a book on Romans 8.32. And this passage, He who did not spare his own son, but freely gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with that son's sacrifice, give us everything else? It's a paraphrase, but that's what it is. I, I know that verse by heart. I could have quoted it like perfectly. You guys would have been like, yeah, I wanna. Um, but my point was, I knew that verse. I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. But what I needed was to see it afresh. I needed to see it again. I needed my eyes open to the glory of God in that passage. I'd been feeding the engine of my soul on worry and ministry and morality and the election and ISIS and my family and work and, and Facebook. And I'd been neglecting the knowledge of God, the glory of God and Jesus. And my engine was breaking down. But the wonderful thing about the fuel of God's glory, of being able to see him, is it's, it's not something we have to earn back when we learn, lose sight of it. It's, it's bought already for us by Jesus. There are tanks and cases and gallons and gallons of it just waiting in the garage of your soul for you to go in and grab. Yes, we have to make time to go to the pump, to go to the station, but whether that's 50 minutes, 5-0 because we're single or whether we're grabbing whatever moments we possibly can to cry out to him in our duties because we're a single mom. God knows what we can do. He knows what we cannot do. But God knows there are things that I could do to prioritize him when I'm not. And he knows that about you. And so of all the takeaways today, besides the truth that God's glory is beautiful and it's not selfish, Maybe my biggest takeaway is that we might long to make beholding God's glory in Jesus Christ the priority of our day. So can I just urge you to ask yourself, are we truly too busy for time with God, for time to see his glory? Are we crowding time with him out because we're choosing to? Are we too busy? Are we too engulfed in crisis and weights that are too desperate to avoid? Or are we choosing to place other things Above him, either just passively or actively. For me, media, social media is just crucially a, a temptation. It's just so easy to find the latest news. It's just incredible stories, incredible genius blogs, incredible things. It's a colossally amazing thing, the internet, and it's a colossal waste of time if we're not careful. Maybe you don't even know what to start with, though, with God's glory. Maybe that's not your problem. You just don't know how to start. Listen, start with an earnest prayer today, this morning, in this place, that you might see his glory. And then pray that prayer again before his word. Start with John 13. Start with the upper room discourse, folks. It's like nuclear glory of God, these chapters we've been looking at. Give him, give him some of the time that you give to TV or Facebook, or election madness, or even good friends. Ask him to show you something of himself in his word before you start. Pray before you even read. Ask him to make you see his glory even a little more through you drinking him in. 
If you're still clueless, come and talk to me or Andrew or Fred and Greg or any care group leader or any mature Christian you know in this room and just say, I'm stuck. I'm stuck. I need prayer. I need help. Or I'm stuck. I don't even know where to start. Andrew sent me this wonderful quote from Piper. When you take your stand on the finished work of God in Christ, when you take your stand on the finished work of God in Christ, when you behold who God is through Jesus and what he's done, and you begin to drink at the river of life, and you begin to eat that bread of heaven, and know that you have found the end of all your longings in that, even if it's just in a quiet time, oh yeah, this is where all my longings are fulfilled. When you do that, Piper says, you only get hungrier for God. So it's kind of self-perpetuating. Just like bad things and addictions are, so is time with the Lord. I'm not saying there there aren't roadblocks, there aren't obstacles, there isn't possibly warfare to wage and prayer to break through strongholds. But God longs to be seen by you. He crushed his son so that he would be seen by you. Jesus closes this section of this long prayer with this. I glorified you on earth. I accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Unfathomable conversation to overhear. We get to overhear the conversation between God and God. This last piece, particularly, it's not easy to unpack. It could well be its own series. But for today, I I hope it's enough to see that Jesus longs to be through with the pain of the cross. Longs to be done with the horrors of this world. He longs to be in his resurrected body, not just in the body, but up with his father. He longs to be home. He longs to be clothed in his father's glory. And that is his right as God the Son. And notice, it is not a glory separate from his father. He says, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you. That's what's so, I think, at Jesus' heart is the glory I have with you, not my own separate glory. Wrapped in you, together with you. Jesus longs to enjoy the the oneness with his Father and to shine that oneness, the glory of that oneness, to shine it out to this universe, to redeem it the truth of who he is. So listen, there is not, I don't believe, a more powerful prayer that we can pray than this. To pray with Jesus, just as he started his prayer today. God, against all odds, against my selfish heart, against my coldness, against my numbness, against my brokenness, against my sin, God, be glorified in my life through Jesus Christ. Do you pray that? I do not pray that enough. That's the first thing on Jesus' mind. God, be glorified in my life. If that's good enough for the Son of God, it's good enough for me. If that's good enough for the Son of God who's about to be crucified, 
and untold suffering. It's good enough for me. And it's what he told us we should pray when he said, God, the first thing I want coming out of my disciples' words is, Father, hallowed be your name. Before my stuff, your stuff. Before my needs, your desserts. I don't pray that enough. And I believe I have faith as I look at this passage that this prayer, as I fight with this prayer, it is going to transform and do greater warfare in my life than I've seen before. I believe that. That I can say to God, God, be glorified through Jesus in this conflict I'm having with this person. I believe it is going to move that forward. God, be glorified through Jesus in my financial crisis. I don't have one today, but it's coming. (laughs) I'm sure. For you, it may be here now. Make your first prayer not, God, solve this financial crisis, but God, be glorified through Jesus through it. God, be glorified in my life through Jesus through this terrible illness. God, be glorified in my life through Jesus in my relationship with this lost family member or friend or coworker. Why don't I pray that more? Do I think somehow that's going to be the end of me? That I'll be overlooked by God if, if, if I make God your glory through Jesus first in my life. If I make that the priority of my heart, I'm, I'm going to be sidetracked? No. Jesus tells us today that that prayer will be answered because it's his prayer. He tells us that prayer, that longing, is the pathway to experiencing eternal life. Now. Because beholding God's glory, shining forth God's glory, that is eternal life. That is paradise on earth. Let's ask for that.